Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. This episode is dedicated to the memory of astronaut Eugene Cernan. This flight of Apollo 10, after a blast-off this morning, uh, some four hours and 13 minutes ago, has been going, with very minor exceptions, absolutely perfectly. It's going well, and Apollo 10 is well on the way toward the moon. The television color television camera works beautifully as we've seen sometime later on in this flight we're going to see the earth and the moon with that color television camera and those pictures should indeed be spectacular man's great adventure another flight to the moon well on the way with the flight of apollo 10 this is Walter cronkite at our cbs news headquarters at the kennedy space center Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 193 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Coasting to the Moon, and Loss of Signal. We left off last time with the Apollo 10 Command Module and Lunar Module separating from the S-4B stage. Now, the Coast to the Moon began. After checking tunnel latches and the docking probe, the astronauts had a light workload as they coasted toward the moon. They were grateful for even such small jobs as firing the thrusters to make slight corrections in spacecraft attitude. But this was so seldom necessary, they began to wonder if the jets were working. On occasion, however, when nothing was firing, the whole stack shimmied. They later speculated that this may have been caused by fuel sloshing. When making optical navigational sightings, the crew had trouble acquiring enough stars for an accurate reading. Without the optics, the men could see no stars at all for a long time. Finally, Stafford spotted a few dim stars after he had traveled 190,000 kilometers into space. But, Not much navigation was needed. The course was so true that the service module propulsion system was used only once to add 15 meters per second to their speed at 26 hours into the voyage. This firing put the spacecraft on a lunar path that would lead the crew over the exact spot where the first landing might be made. The rest of the time, the astronauts studied the flight plan, slept, ate, and beamed five excellent television transmissions back to the Earth. Here's a clip of one of the TV transmissions. Up, up, and away from the Apollo 10 crewmen, who are up, up, and away themselves, past the 130,000-mile halfway mark to the moon. Radioing to Earth, what they insisted was their own version of the song, they continue to transmit amazing color television pictures of the Earth, the moon, and themselves. The impromptu disc jockey performance and complaints about the drinking water were the only things unexpected on this clockwork precise brush with the moon, the major perils of which lie ahead. 
Good afternoon. Astronauts Tom Stafford, Gene Cernan, and John Young have thrown the switch. And for the fourth time in the flight of Apollo 10, we are joining them in space. It seems safe to say that they're enjoying the idea up there as much as we are here on Earth. And up there, being inside the spacecraft with these first pictures today of that particular view. The astronauts began their transmission about 15 minutes early today, beginning with pictures of the Earth. And there is the shield that the astronauts, at least, consider a work of art. Uh, not so good, really. It looks like they've got uh, some other intense lighting from the back and the side. Uh, if you could get the lighting more directly on the back, it'd be better. Yeah, that's the sun coming in. The sun has been causing them more of a problem today than in yesterday's telecasts. Uh, just a few moments ago, they said that they doubted that they would be able to show us pictures of the moon today as they had hoped because the sun and the moon are so close together from their vantage point uh, that the sun overrides the moon. There's John Young. Yeah, John coming through nicely on the tube. That's about as excited as you'll ever see John Young. The RM of today. Oh, that's beautiful. We're going to put some more things in it, but we just ran out of time. Roger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is also your emblem. This is another emblem. Do you see any resemblance between the card and the guy holding the card? Uh, now that you mentioned it. That, of course, is Charlie Brown, which will be the code name for John Young when he is alone in the spacecraft as the lunar module descends near the moon's surface. Now you're going to bring on that wizard here. Okay, we got uh, Snoopy now. Well, he's been quiet for two days. He's, he's going to get a chance to do a little whooping here in the next couple days. Roger, we know the resemblance there, too. Thanks a lot. I didn't know Tom had a big nose like that. That shield, the mission shield for Apollo 10, the astronauts have taken a good deal of razzing. We're putting just about everything connected with their m mission, a portrayal of it, in that. Take over to you, spacecraft. I do picking up Gene now. I got rather strong backlighting from uh, the window. That is backlit. The camera, of course, set for the brighter light, and when the sun is behind them, as it is, uh, they you're not able to see their faces as well. Looks like Cernan is going to try to block the hatch so that we get a better view. These men understand television. Just uh, you all drawing the window shades there. How is that any better? Yes, indeed. We got a chance to shave this morning before this show. I hope that doesn't bother anybody. Uh, it doesn't bother us. Uh, definition is real good. We can uh, just about read your wristwatch, I think. It looks like it is about uh, 1,600. 1,605? 1,605 Cape Time. 1,605 Cape Time. Roger, we copy. The voice of mission control, that is the capsule communicator, is Bruce McCandless, one of the astronauts that has not yet flown. Roger, we've synchronized our watches here. Yeah, 
32,000 miles from Earth, just a little more than 100,000 miles from the Moon. It's almost unbelievable to us now, but in 1969, TV transmissions from space were still controversial. Here is CBS News' David Schumacher and Gene Cernan on the subject. Not everyone in the space program, of course, agrees with all of this television. It is, in their view, show business and should have no place in an engineering program. On the other hand, the price tag on the whole lunar Apollo program is $24 billion, and there's some suspicion the taxpayers think they deserve at least as much for their money. With NASA officials finding that money increasingly hard to get, they've opened up more and more of the program to television. It may be true that an engineering case can't even be made, that ground controllers may spot something during one of the transmissions that will prove helpful. But Gene Cernan and the other members of this crew generally list a more basic reason for their support of onboard television. I feel very strongly, very, very strongly, that this program is one which belongs to, to you and uh, your great-grandmother and your children and the children of people sitting out there uh, as well as to myself. I've been fortunate enough to be able to be a direct participant in it, but I'd like to be able to, not me, but we, let me say we would like to be able to give and share part of what's going on, part of the history that's being made in, in our lifetime, in, in all of our lifetime, right now with a lot of other people. Hopefully to give other people a better understanding of what's going on, and hopefully better to share, to, to share some of that excitement that's involved. They, they can't help be but be excitement in seeing some of the things that are really happening right now. And hopefully we can do this. Stafford, Cernan, and Young were the first Apollo astronauts to be free from illness during the mission. Although Cernan experienced a slight vestibular disturbance. Like all their colleagues who had flown before, once they unbuckled from the couches, they had a stuffy feeling in their heads. This lasted for 8 to 10 hours for Stafford and Young. Cernan gradually lost the sensation over the next two days. He practiced cardinal head movements that the medics thought might help overcome his slight feeling of nausea. This involved moving the spine in a circular motion in several different orientations. Although he was able to exercise for more than four minutes at a session, by the seventh day of flight, when he returned to Earth, he lambasted the procedure, saying it must have been designed to bring on illness rather than to alleviate it. The crew slept well, although the thruster firing bothered Cernan the first night. Later, when they were circling the moon, the men were glad that McDivitt's crew had suggested they carry a sleeping bag apiece. The spacecraft grew cold once the windows had been covered to darken the cabin for sleeping. One major complaint the astronauts registered was about their water supply. They were supposed to chlorinate it at night, but due to an error in procedures passed to them by flight control, Stafford had a double dose of chlorine when he took a drink during the first breakfast of the trip. This was unpleasant, 
but it posed no major problem. Something else in the water supply did. When earlier crews had complained about gas in the water system, a new water bag was designed with a handle the crew could use to whirl the bag around to separate the gas from the water. But it didn't work. The gas settled to the bottom of the bag and then remixed with the water when the crew members tried to drink. The gas worried them. They could envision getting diarrhea, which would have been difficult to cope with during flight. The crew did have gas pains and cramps, but fortunately nothing more. Poor water quality may have affected their appetites as well. The Apollo 10 astronauts were not big eaters. On occasions, they skipped meals. Stafford even estimated that they had enough food to last for 30 days. Not all the blame could be laid on the water. However, the food was still no Epicurean delight. Back on Earth in early May, Donald D. Arabian, chief of the Apollo Test Division, had tried a four-day supply of their rations. Arabian claimed to be somewhat of a human garbage can, but even he lost his desire for food on this diet. For example, the sausage patties tasted like granulated rubber and left an unpleasant taste in one's mouth. With all the difficulties of preparation, Arabian added by the third day, Continuing the test was a chore, but he did like the items that were closest to normal table foods. Stafford's crew also found some of the newer dishes that could be eaten with a spoon quite palatable, but the crew dreaded reconstituting dehydrated meals, knowing that the water contained so much gas. But NASA was trying to improve the food. Here's a clip. One little notice milestone on this flight, David, the return of the sandwich to space. We had a corned beef sandwich, you'll remember, aboard Gemini 3, but the corned beef was a little gamey by the time Young got to it, and the experiment never did exactly work. This time, Young and his colleagues have two spreads, ham salad and chicken salad, in tubes. They can squeeze them onto either party rye or white. Each slice is vacuum-sealed, the man in charge of food here said, in its own little spacesuit. The man in charge is a veterinarian, by the way, and takes some kidding about meals even a dog wouldn't eat. But he did let us sample the bread. The vacuum sealing makes it look funny, like a piece of shiny plastic, but it really does taste like bread. The astronauts also have some sea ration-type meals they can heat and eat, a great triumph. But everything else is still freeze-dried, little grayish blocks of something or other, to which Stafford, Young, and Cernan add water. It doesn't exactly make your mouth water, but I guess it works. For connoisseurs like you, David, of earlier space menus, I should add that everybody still likes the bacon squares and those strawberry cereal cubes still aren't selling. David? In contrast, the water system on the limb was different and worked much better than the command module. Living in the command module is only part of the story. Things get better, if not perhaps just a bit more complicated, when the astronauts open up the lunar module later this evening. It provides room, of course, more space and space. For the rest, here's correspondent Nelson Benton with test engineer Scott McLeod at Grumman Aircraft, where the LEM is made. 
Well, Dave, David, in some ways, uh, the command module is perhaps a flying hotel, and this one, this limb, is just a bit more austere. For example, uh, you've got to stand up on the flight. There's nowhere to sit down on the limb. And Scott McLeod, why is there no place to sit? Every other spacecraft has seats. Well, basically, we don't require any seats in the lunar module because we are not in the vehicle during launch. And the astronauts, while they're in the limb, are either experiencing zero G or just one six G. In order to hold us down, rather than using seats, we use something that I can show you from here. It's cabling, like a window washer's outfit, that attaches to the suit at a position like this. There's one from behind you, one that comes from in front, attaching the same place, and it holds you down toward the floor in space. There is an improvement, though, in the uh, water situation on the limb. What, what is uh, our water situation as compared with the command module? Well, we carry our water with us rather than reconstitute it in the vehicle. Don't have any trouble with hydrogen bubbles and... Uh... It actually probably came from uh, Cape Kennedy. But, David, they say there is just a taste of iodine in it. Unlike Borman's crew on Apollo 8, which could not see the moon with the unaided eye until the spacecraft was almost upon it, Stafford's group spotted it on the second day of flight. On the Earth, it looked like a waxing crescent. But Stafford and Young, with the help of Earth's shine, could see almost a full moon. Although the moon was much bigger at 200,000 kilometers above the Earth, landmarks on the lunar surface still could not be picked out. Cernan also asked flight controllers if they thought he could really recognize the S-4B stage 5,600 kilometers away because that's what he thought he was seeing. The Capcom told him that the men in the control room were nodding their heads yes and that the distance between the two vehicles actually measured 7,400 kilometers. Finally, on May 21st, the long coast to the moon was over when Apollo 10 reached lunar vicinity. The controllers informed the astronauts that at one time or another, more than a billion people had watched their televised activities but interest now focused on the exact moment when their spacecraft would shoot around the moon over the far side and lose communications with Earth. Mission Control predicted that loss of signal would come at 75 hours 48 minutes. The controllers had already determined that Apollo 10 would reach the moon 11 minutes later than scheduled since there had been only one mid-course correction rather than two. Its trajectory would be 110 kilometers above the lunar surface. Here's how Walter Cronkite explained the situation to his viewers. At this moment, one of the most dramatic moments in the flight of Apollo 10 since its launch from Cape Kennedy on a Sunday afternoon. At this hour, the crew of Apollo 10 is about 724 miles from the moon, statute miles. It's plunging toward the moon at some 5,000 miles an hour, almost 5,700 miles an hour it'll be very shortly. To put it another way, Apollo 10's about as close to the moon now as New York City is to Indianapolis, a trip that uh, a lot of us have made. 
It's uh, as far from the Earth as the equivalent of 25 round trips from New York to Sydney, Australia, which few of us have attempted. Right now, they're on the way to the moon, as we say, and for lunar orbital insertion, which will come on the dark side of the moon. They're coming up uh, sporadically here as they report their last uh, maneuvers and getting into a position which is uh, with the back of the spacecraft facing toward the moon or their orbital path. They're pitched about 22 degrees. Uh, that is uh, just a little bit off of the vertical. At in about five more minutes, 4.37 uh, this afternoon, signal will be lost with the spacecraft as they disappear behind the dark side of the moon. And then just nine minutes later from that, they will fire their uh, service propulsion system engine, 20,500 pounds of thrust, for almost six minutes to put themselves into orbit around the moon. That is a braking maneuver. They slow down from 5,700 miles an hour, which will be their speed at that point. And in order to prevent being slung by the uh, moon's gravitational pull back into a course toward the Earth, they will uh, slow down to 3,700 miles an hour, which is the orbital speed around the moon. They'll go into then a high elliptical orbit around the moon with the low point at 69 miles above the moon's surface, the high point 195 miles above the moon's surface. They'll come back from that dark side of the moon and for the first time report to us how that very important burn of the service propulsion system engine went at 70, at 5.12 p.m. That's going to be quite a long wait for the men in Mission Control in Houston and all of us around the world as we wait almost breathlessly to hear how they have done uh, in that uh, important maneuver. They're, they disappear at 437. According to the present calculations, they reappear at 512 as far as the communications go. The burn should come at, uh, as we said, uh, 445 or nine minutes after the disappearance behind the moon's surface. If by any chance they find that they cannot fire the service propulsion system engine or for any reason decide not to fire the service propulsion, propulsion system engine, uh, they will come back around the moon just a little bit earlier because they'll be making 5,700 miles an hour instead of going through that braking maneuver, of course. And then we would hear from them at one minute after five. Now I have a clip of the astronaut's final transmission before loss of signal. Here's a transmission from them. They're giving them a 10-minute mark for the firing of the service propulsion system engine. We should have about two and a half more minutes of... Two seconds early to allow for the lag time in communication. That's the voice of Jack Riley in Mission Control in Houston. The voice in Mission Control, who is the capsule communicator, talking to the spacecraft is Charles Duke. Everybody here says, got the... Okay, and we'll see you right on the other side in orbit. All right, 
LOS is loss of signal. The command module with the lunar module attached to its nose as it has been since uh, they linked up on Sunday afternoon, shortly after liftoff from Merritt Island, the Kennedy Space Center, goes into an orbit, or go passes the moon to the left side as we look at the moon, and is grabbed by the moon's gravitational pull, around, pulled around to the far side. At that point, the spacecraft engines are fired, to slow it down, a braking action, which slows it down by 2,000 miles an hour, from 5,700 miles an hour to 3,720 miles an hour, to put it into lunar orbit. You perhaps have heard the last from the spacecraft. You've heard uh, Houston wish them Godspeed, and Stafford say, we'll see you on the other side, which may turn to, out to be the phrase from all of these moon-orbiting spacecraft, since that was the last word we heard from Frank Borman when Apollo 8 went around the moon in December. The time has come for officially the loss of signal, and presumably we have now heard the last of the spacecraft until sometime after 5 o'clock, uh, at least 30 minutes from now. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 193 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 10, Coasting to the Moon and Loss of Signal. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list. And connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the MIR level donors. There is one so far this year. MIR donors give $80 or more during the calendar year, and thanks for your continued support, MIR donors. Well, I left a little cliffhanger in there. <laughs> Will the service propulsion engine fire? Will Apollo 10 go into lunar orbit? Find out next week. <laughs> well, this episode was a little different than the past ones we were having. Uh, I purposely made this episode a little more relaxed to reflect what was going on in the mission, which was essentially a long coast to the moon. I added a TV clip where the most important thing discussed seemed to be the logo for the mission. <laughs> and, of course, the... Uh, the little uh, insert about the TV controversy and the complaints about the food and water. Just normal things. Although, I wouldn't want to drink that water either. <laughs> and then, once they reach the moon, the tension builds because they have to make that burn to go into lunar orbit. 
and the burn is on the far side of the moon where there is loss of communication with Earth. So that's kind of what I was going for in this episode. Now, departing from the episode, I want to say a few words about the passing of the great astronaut and space program promoter, Gene Cernan. I had heard he was in declining health, so this was not a total surprise. I want to extend my condolences to his family and friends. And He was a great astronaut, and he had a great and friendly personality. A pleasure to be around and a credit to the cause of space exploration. A donor wrote me an email telling of his son's experience meeting Gene Cernan at Oshkosh. I'm going to read an excerpt from that now. At Oshkosh, my son got to meet and have lengthy discussions with Gene Cernan, who took part in the EAA program. I'm attaching a photo of my son with Gene. On this sad day of Gene's passing, I thought it would be appropriate to share this photo with you and let you know how much of an impact Gene Cernan had on my son's life. My son stated how kind Gene was and how he took the time to explain the opportunities of an aviation career. Today, my son is an Air Force pilot who has over 3,000 combat hours and just recently returned home from one of his many deployments. End excerpt. I want to thank that donor for sharing that with me. I sincerely appreciate it and thank you for your service to our country. Lastly, here I have an article from NASA about Gene's passing, and I want to read some excerpts. This this comes from NASA. Eugene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon, died Monday, January 16th, surrounded by his family. Cernan, a captain in the U.S. Navy, left his mark on the history of exploration by flying three times in space, twice to the moon. He also holds the distinction of being the second American to walk in space and the last human to leave his footprints on the lunar surface. NASA Administrator Charles Bolden said in a statement after Cernan's death, quote, Truly, America has lost a patriot and pioneer who helped shape our country's bold ambitions to do things that humankind had never before achieved, end quote. A statement from Cernan's family said in part, quote, Even at the age of 82, Gene was passionate about sharing his desire to see the continued human exploration of space and encouraged our nation's leaders and young people to not let him remain the last man to walk on the moon, end quote. Cernan was one of 14 astronauts selected by NASA in October 1963. He piloted the Gemini 9 mission with Commander Thomas P. Stafford on a three-day flight in June of 1966. Cernan logged more than two hours outside the orbiting capsule. In May of 69, he was the lunar module pilot of Apollo 10, the most comprehensive lunar orbit qualification and verification test of the lunar lander. Cernan concluded his historic space exploration career as commander of the last human mission to the moon in December 1972. Apollo 17 established several new records for human spaceflight, including the longest lunar landing flight, longest lunar surface extravehicular activity at 22 hours and 6 minutes, largest lunar sample return, nearly 249 pounds, and 
Longest time in lunar orbit, 147 hours, 48 minutes. Cernan and crewmate Harrison Smith completed three highly successful excursions to the nearby craters and the Taurus Litro Mountains, making the moon their home for more than three days. As he left the lunar surface, Cernan said, quote, America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. As we leave the moon and Taurus Litro, we leave as we came, and God willing, we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. End quote. On July 1, 1976, Cernan retired from the Navy after 20 years and ended his NASA career. He went into private business and served as a television commentator for early flights of the space shuttle. Cernan is survived by his wife, Jan, his daughter and son-in-law, Tracy, and Marion, stepdaughters, Kelly and Danielle, and nine grandchildren. And that's the end of the NASA article. I just did the biography on Gene about six episodes ago. It was episode 187, and you can listen to that again if you want. Also, if you haven't seen his movie, The Last Man on the Moon, I encourage you to, to view that one. It's very good. And on the homepage with this week's episode, I have attached two NASA videos about Gene. So check those out with the pictures and audio for this episode. Okay, I want to move on here and say that I was very pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. James M., donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket. Don H. donated at the Soyuz level. Stephen M. donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. Matthew O. from Texas donated at the Apollo level. Tobias L. from Germany donated at the Mercury level. Christoph Z. from Germany donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. John B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and Kevin G. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned his rocket. Thank you very much, all of the donors this week. I sincerely appreciate it. That brings our Patreon total to 89, with a goal of reaching 150, and the overall total to 101 donors for this year, with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of 2017. To make a one-time donation, please go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button, or you can sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com, based on their donation level. Donors that donate two years in a row receive the rocket emoji, and those who donate three years in a row receive the moon emoji, and four years in a row they received the satellite emoji. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past couple of weeks. I'd like to thank Super Tricker for the kind review and the all-important five-star rating. The other two ratings were anonymous, and I want to thank whoever did that. I really appreciate it. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters, and I will recognize all of you at the end of the month. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want.
Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 10 and see if that service module engine fired. The last couple of weeks, I have mentioned that the podcast is approaching a major milestone. Well, I'm happy to report that we have reached it. The podcast has now exceeded 1 million downloads. So, thanks go out to all my listeners and subscribers for downloading the podcast. I sincerely appreciate that. Dave down at Aussie HQ sent in a uh, Austin Powers cartoon about that. One million downloads type thing. <laughs> that was pretty good. If you're on the Twitter or the Facebook following me, then you got that cartoon. And I appreciate it, Dave. In other podcast news, I want to give you another statistic. These are the top 10 states for downloads in 2016. This is for the whole year of 2016. Number one, California. Number two, Texas. Number three, Florida. Number four, Illinois. Number five, New York. Number six, Virginia. Number seven, Pennsylvania. Number eight, Michigan. Number nine, Washington. And coming in at number 10, the old North State. That's North Carolina, folks. (laughs) We made it to the top 10 for 2016. In personal news, I'm still hoping and planning to go see a launch, or maybe even two, at the Cape this year. There are several scheduled launches in March. I'm not sure where the best place to view a launch is. I'm thinking somewhere along the beach. So if you have viewed a launch there recently, how about sending me an email and tell me what you thought about your viewing location. It's mike at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, that's about all the time I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 194 up by next Thursday. So long for now.